And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Well, good Sunday afternoon, and welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. The best alternative, the thinking person's alternative to the NFL. So <laughs> we'll go with that. Uh, all I can say is we're going to have fun this afternoon because uh, Carl Kantek is our guest. Carl was on, oh, gee, I think it's probably been about four or five or six months ago. And uh, it was a wonderful, great discussion. I, I thought I should probably have him back on, but share him with the Sunday afternoon audience, because a lot of times our Sunday afternoon audience is a different one than we have on Tuesday mornings. So uh, with that said, Carl is a, an elected official. He uh, works with school districts all over the state of Washington. He works with the legislature. Uh, he is a thinking man who understands that liars figure and uh, figures lie as long as they're figured by the liars. <laughs> and he's kind of dissected that a little bit, and he's going to have some great information to impart to our audience and let people understand just exactly how corrupt the school vaccination programs and many other things are that have been manipulated to show that uh, COVID-19 is deadly and that uh, children are not affected by vaccines and that everybody's getting vaccinated. So with that said, Carl, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the program. It's great to see you, my friend. Good afternoon, Dan. How's my audio? Looks good. Sounds good. You're in great shape. Very good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I would say that, uh, boy, that your intro there, the that uh, all of those singers and, uh, you know, you know that we all know that our phones listen to us. Right. You talk about something and then the ads start to show up. Well, I was uh, singing around my phone. And so it started to give me ads for singing lessons so that my phone not only listens to me, my phone judges me and determines that I can't keep uh, keep in tune or, or stay on key. But uh Yes, sir. I'm really uh, pleased to be here today, and I have uh, I have a couple things that we're going to talk about. The first one is a recent uh, article in California that's trying to fearmonger 
and I'm sure it will be used. Uh, well, there's a couple of things they're trying to do with that. The second one is that uh, a, a, a study came out in Washington claiming that their latest legislation was a, a smashing success, which is not true. And then I thought since they're talking about bringing masks back, I would uh, go through those slides that you saw me do in uh, Arizona, where we show uh, exactly that uh, Tony Fauci's, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci's uh, nudging and the, the noble lie. So if... Uh, and, uh, I love that. I love that. And the only thing I can say is anything, any lie that comes out of Tony Fauci is not a noble lie at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, only from their perspective. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm, well, I know that people are going to really enjoy this discussion, so take it away. All right. I'll go ahead and... Uh, and uh, well, that's interesting to me because you need to be kind of a, a, a pretty wonky sort of person to uh, be into this. So let me make sure that uh, is that the full screen that you're seeing right yes. now, Dan? Yeah, okay. we are. Yep, and it's not it, it's not my behind the scenes one. No. Okay. Give me just a second here. And uh, so the title of this talk is Is the California Department of Public Health an honest broker of information. And uh, what we'll see here, so there was a big article here talking about how 570 schools are targeted for their low vaccination rates. And then there's the associated link there. And that, uh, uh, you know, so the story here is that uh, more than 500 schools are being audited by the state because they reported more than 10% of their kindergarten or seventh grade students were not fully vaccinated last year. Schools that allow students to attend school without all their vaccinations are in jeopardy of losing funding. The audit list released by the California Department of Public Health includes 450 schools serving kindergarten students and 176 schools serving seventh graders with low vaccination rates. 56 of the schools serve both. Another 39 schools failed to file a vaccination report. Now, uh, before I get into that, before digging into the data, based on this headline and general tone, how many schools would a reader expect would have 100% MMR coverage? None or very few. Yeah, not very many. Yeah, so, but when I uh, went to their audit list and they were dumb enough to put the Excel on file, uh, I mean, online so I could get it. So I did a simple sort with MMR complete 100%. And uh, you can see the top school there, 219 kindergartners, 100% MMR, 98, 90%, over 90% varicella. And then the, on line five, Ada Gimmon School, they have 100% both in the MMR and the chicken pox. So if we continue further in, so all the way down at line 62, so 60, the first line is the title line. So 61 of the schools have 100% MMR coverage. But then notice... Uh, on the fourth column over is the enrollment, and you'll see that Citrus Elementary in Upland has one kindergarten student. So it's pretty easy for them to have 100% MMR, and it would also be very easy for them to have 100% no MMR because they've only got one student. Now, if we continue down, 254 of the schools out of this 450 have over 90% MMR. 381 of the schools have over 80%, and 405 of the 449 or 50 are over 
So before explaining further to understand how this data is manipulation is being conducted, then why are we doing this? So this will be a brief review. Uh, background of the constant attack on school attendance, non-medical exemptions. It's not about low vaccination rates or risk to the students. The true purpose of the attack on school attendance, non-medical vaccine exemptions is to eliminate exemptions as a legal principle and precedent as vaccine requirements are expanded onto adults. Uh, pharma achieved 90% plus saturation of the pediatric vaccine market in the 1990s, primarily through the first three factors below, which are school attendance rules, the 1986 uh, Act, and then 1994 vaccines for children. And then the fourth item there is that vaccines are biologics with no patent expiry. And that's uh, so there's no process by which there can be made a, a generic and that they would uh, so that anyone else would be able to make the product for them. So this is just uh, from the CDC. This is one of their pink book uh, appendices. And if you look at the left side, the box there, is the uh, the shows in the year 62 to 85. You know, there's this idea that in the past there was some golden age when everybody got vaccinated and it's only these darn anti-vaxxies that, that are driving the rates down, et cetera. But on the left, you can see from 1962 to 1985, you have DTAP or the DPT at that time, uh, you know, in rates in the 60s and 70s. So 30 and 40% of students unvaccinated. You can see in the polio, they only started tracking the rates in 74, 60%. And then the MMR at in the uh, showing at 67, that was not 1967. That or there was only a single measles vaccine. They they introduced the first one in 62 and then had to withdraw them because of all of the problems that they were having. They were doing a uh, a dead attenuated one. People were getting sicker afterwards than if they just simply got the measles, et cetera. So then, but if you look on to the right, then you see 1991 through 2009. And then if you look at, for example, on the DTP three or more, this is for two-year-olds, about 95, 94, 95, you start getting up into 95%, 96%, 97%. So that's the years when, uh, you know, they really took it, things really can, uh, came together for them. And then uh, today, and for about the last, well, since that time, less than one and a half percent of children have zero vaccines. And the national exemption rate is 2.2% this last year. It's never been above 2.5. So this is just a reference for that, that I'm not pulling this out of the thin air. So this is a coverage for two-year-olds. Uh, although the proportion of children who received no vaccine doses by age 24 months was low, this percentage, so we're up to 1.3%. Uh, they leave out the fact that they keep adding more vaccines into the schedule. And then vaccination coverage with selected vaccines. This is exemption rates in kindergarten. So 2021, it was 2.2. I believe it's similar for this next year. Now, school attendance rules. So in 1969, only 26 states had school level attendance vaccine requirements. Washington's law did not come in until 1970, 1980. I was able to, as a child, move to Washington state, do 10 years in the public schools, graduate and never produce a vaccination record. And yet again, there's the, uh, the, the general uh, impression they try to present is that there's always been rules for everybody at all times. Uh, liability. So in 1986, they passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And uh, some people will say, well, you know, the, the vaccines aren't, they're not that dangerous. 
And I will point out that in HR 5546, that the fact that vaccines can and do injure some children is memorialized in the name of the bill. It's called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. It's not called the National Childhood Parents Imagining Harm to Their Children Act. And what that did is that took away so that the subtitle two was the compensation program. And this was supposed to be a very quick, efficient way for parents whose children were injured to be able to get compensation without having to go through the lawsuits and everything else. Of course, if you talk to anyone that's been through that system, you know, it's like getting pulled through a knothole backwards. Then government purchasing. So in 1994, this was a, a Clinton initiative, is the Vaccines for Children program and what that does is Vaccines for Children provides vaccines to children whose parents or guardians may not be able to afford them. This ensures that all children have a better chance of getting their recommended vaccines. And uh, so you have the ACIP schedule, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. People are becoming much more aware of these different groups and committees and different uh, regulatory bodies since COVID has come in. So once uh, the ACIP adds this onto the uh, uh, this, the recommended for children, then it goes, it gets into the schedule for the vaccines for children, and that is government purchasing. Now, what government purchasing means is that there's no uh, negotiations. So this set of conditions, having school rules, zero liability, and government purchasing of the product created an ideal pharmaceutical environment. School attendance requirements results in zero advertising costs to the companies. Vaccine promotion is instead paid for by the taxpayers. You have never seen an ad for the MMR. No corporate liability for injuries or deaths. The NVICP protects companies from liability lawsuits. Injured parties are instead forced to apply to the Department of Health and Human Services, where a Department of Justice lawyer special master acts as a judge. Another DOJ lawyer defends the HHS. They use a special set of legal rules that are prejudiced against the plaintiff. And in the rare cases when compensation is pro provided, it's, it doesn't come out of the pharmaceutical companies. There is a 75 cent tax on every dose that goes in. And that's why you've never seen an ad where you injured by the MMR. And then the vaccines for children is zero price pressure. So the VFC is automatically funding, requiring no quote from Congress, and there's apparently no negotiation, because uh, last fall, when Pfizer, when uh, the ACIP added the COVID vaccine to the recommended schedule for children, automatically placed it on vaccines for children, then you can see in the highlight of the URL, Pfizer will raise the price of its COVID-19 vaccine almost fourfold, revealing a unique feature of U.S. healthcare pricing. Yeah, that's a pretty good, unique feature when you can just quadruple your price without any concern whether or not the customer is going to continue to buy it. Now, the result of those factors, and because there is no patent expiry, Merck has been selling into the pediatric market the same liability-free, no advertising required, early 1980s MMR formula at whatever price they set. Now, once pharma laced up the pediatric market, they logically desired to do the same to the adult market. Pharma looked at the adults they have control over who were mostly healthcare providers and identified they were getting nowhere near 95% compliance. This is a FDA.gov reference, importance of influences, vaccination for healthcare personnel. Despite the benefits of immunization, CDC estimates only 40% of the nation's healthcare providers are vaccinated each year. 
And so then the next uh, highlight there is that, uh, in fact, some states and health agencies have adopted mandatory immunization programs. So they realize that there's no way they're going to be able to do to the kids, uh, to the adults, what they did to the kids without mandates. And then additionally, the ability to, they had to be able to restrict exemptions. This is a recent uh, showing the 2014 to 2019. So that's 56.4%. These are the number of adults who don't get the flu shot. And uh, so to pharma, that's lost market share right there. You've got a 56 to 62, that's lost market share. Now this recognition caused the development of a collection of plans to be able to implement vaccine mandates on adults. A major component of these plans has been eliminating non-medical exemptions in the school age population. So we have healthy people 2030, and this is uh, increasing the per proportion of people who get the flu vaccine every year. They want it. Uh, this is for adults 70% plus. Increase the proportion of adults age 19 years or older who get all the other recommended vaccines. Uh, ASIP would basically like adults to repeat the childhood schedule every 10 to 15 years. This is one, uh, the National Adult Vaccination Program, and this was with the 2020 goals. And... Uh, change policies to exam, to expand immunization rates. And uh, in the highlight is mandate immunizations and then other opportunities to mandate immunization of adults may be identified and integrated with quality measures and initiatives. So that's when you'll hear that your, uh, you know, your medical office will get a higher reimbursement rate based on how many of their patients are receiving all of the vaccines, et cetera. And then, you know, they want to make it so that you can't participate in society without being fully vaccinated. Of course, that's the uh, final objective. Um, this is a healthy 20, you know, you see these healthy people 2020 goals and the, uh, you know, 80%, 90%, 90%. These are very aggressive. And then if you look at the recommendations on the side, you expand funding and reimbursement. That's paying the doctors more money for it. Uh, leverage opportunities and health reform. That's when you were talking uh you know, about the, making it a condition for your insurance, uh, create a national registry for adult immunizations, identify and trade lay champions. So this is getting uh, influencers out there talking it up. And we're seeing all of this, you know, we've seen all of this happen real time with COVID. Then here's a group, the Adult Vaccine Access Coalition. Uh, these are all of the coalition partners and starting at A with the Alliance for Aging Research. You can see GSK. Uh, Dynavax, you see the vaccine companies, Merck, Moderna, Pfizer, they're all involved in this. So this information is the context for why California Department of Public Health and all public health entities consistently misrepresent the vaccination status, impact of exemption use, and exaggerate vaccine hesitancy in the school population. And because vaccination rates are very high everywhere. We saw that there, if only if less than 2% of kids are never getting a vaccine and less than 3% are exempting in schools, then clearly uh, how, how much hesitancy is there when you have 97% voluntary compliance from the population? Now, high vaccination rates do not persuade legislators that exemptions need to be restricted or eliminated or to apply additional pressure on the population to vaccinate. So if we go back now to the story, so after that little diversion there, but this is the context in which they're creating this sort of propaganda or whatever you want to call it, skewed uh, information communication. So we come back to this. So more than 500 public schools and the 10% of their kindergartens. So now what are the tactics used to create the false impression that rates are low? 
You use numbers when it is statistically insignificant. Uh, you use statistics when it is numerically insignificant. <laughs> and then you use deceptive inclusionary criteria. So that was where, and we'll go through these. So the use of numbers when it is statistically insignificant. So more than 500 public schools. So an average reader, again, that's going to buzz this, never going to read the fine print, never going to look at that Excel that shows all of the schools, et cetera. It's going to be, oh, my God, there's 500 schools that would, that they're not vaccinated by the time a casual reader skims that article. But uh, when you go to the California Department of Education and understand just how massive the California education system is, you know, if California was its own country, I think it would be the sixth largest in the world or something. I heard a statistic once, but you see that just in elementary, that's K-5, you have almost 6,000 schools and there's uh, 10,559 K-12 schools in California. So when you understand that more than 500 sounds like a lot, unless you know that there's almost 11,000 schools. Then uh, California has over 470,000 kindergarten students alone. There's about six anywhere between well, there used to be over 6 million kids in California schools, but now that everyone's fleeing California, they're down to about five, eight, I believe. So that, uh, but of that over 470,000 are kindergarten students. So the total number of students in these audit schools, even if they were all actually low vaccinated, it's only 5% of the total schools in California, uh, students. So then the next is deceptive inclusionary criteria in the measurement category. So in the highlight, is that uh, they're not fully vaccinated. And then you have low vaccination rates. So they're trying to interchange those two terms so that you don't realize there's a difference between those are not uh, the same thing. So you have uh, fully vaccinated is 16 of 16 injections recorded on your paperwork by November 1 of that school year. So for K-12 admission, you have four polio, injected polio, five DTAP, three hep B, two MMR, and two chickenpox shots. And then uh, the, the seventh grade that they are using in this thing is that you're supposed to have a sixth pertussis-containing vaccine uh, around age 12, which is uh, seventh grade. So that is what is fully vaccinated according to this report. That's how you can have 61 schools with 100% MMR and uh, 250 with over 90% show up on a low, quote unquote, low vaccination rate report. So the next thing that is a problem with this uh, or, you know, that, is, that they exploit is that there's disharmony between the medical recommendation dose schedule timing and when they want to measure the children for the injections. So this is a, an appendix from the CDC again, recommended and minimum ages and intervals between vaccine doses. So uh, on the left there, you have DTAP, the first, second, third, fourth. So the first four DTAP are scheduled from uh, two months to 18 months. And then there's a fifth DTAP between the four, they call it four to six years, but it's between your fourth and seventh birthday. So there's a three-year administration window there. Then you can see that the second MMR, four to six years, three-year administration window. The fourth IPV, same in the second chickenpox shot. So four of the 16 K, K through six required injections, including the second MMR, are scheduled in a three-year window between the fourth and seventh birthday. 
kindergarten enrolls at age five, only one year into that three year. And now transitional kindergarten, they're trying to get all the kids in school as early as possible. That's at age four. So that the California Department of Public Health and all state health departments are compressing the CDC ACIP Medical Vaccine Administration three-year window into the political administrative grade-based measurement points. So they're measuring these four-year-olds for injections that they're not technically overdue for until they're over age seven. So a less than 16 injection transitional kindergarten or kindergarten student is fully within medical guidelines until their seventh birthday. Uh, a not exempt student with a pediatrician who is following the medical guideline, these students are being improperly miscategorized as under or uh, unvaccinated. So not fully vaccinated with all vaccine injections by the report date does not equal low vaccination rates. Again, 61 of these schools have 100% MMR coverage. So the next is uh, the use of percentage when it is numerically insignificant. So then we're back to uh, because they reported that more than 10% of their kindergarten or seventh grade students were not fully vaccinated. So you take the fully vaccinated criteria and then apply percentage on extremely small classes and you get the ability to create a list like that. So using percentage measurement on small populations is deceiving. In any school population with less than 100 students, one student is measuring more than 1%. So if you look at the bottom 16 schools for MMR coverage, look at the low enrollment. So you have a grade school name city and then enrollment, and I've got that highlighted. So Cherry Chase Elementary, two children, Lakeport Alternative, two children, and uh, you know, there's a school with 35, 29, 38, 7, 7, 5, 5. You know, these are low, these are small schools typically. Mm -hmm. And that's how they're, and so, but that puts them on the list. So if you uh, look at Greenpoint Elementary, Blue Lake, the bottom one there on line 450, they have a single kindergartner and that single kindergartner not having a two MMR by the report date puts them on the audit list. You know, when you have these small schools where uh, it's quite deceptive. So, this chart here shows the enrollment range. So in a, in a school where the kindergarten class is one to nine, then uh, if you have nine students, they measure at least 11%. Eight students is higher than 11%. Seven students is higher than 11%. So only one student that is not fully vaccinated puts them on this list. Now in this, uh, so out of this report, 63 of the kindergarten schools have one to nine kindergarten students. Uh, in the next enrollment range of 10 to 19, um, in that, in, in classes, kid, schools with a kindergarten that small, each one measures uh, at least 5.2% or higher if they have less than 19. So then only two students will put that school onto the list. 35 of the schools in this report have 10 to 19 kindergartners where only two students less than fully vaccinated get them on the list. And then 20 to 29 is three, 30 to 39 is four. You can see that 63, 35, in terms of the number of schools. So 389 of the schools have less than 100 students. So only, only in a, a 61 of the schools listing the kindergarten and 46 of the schools with seventh grade, does one student even equal 1%? only in those schools where 10% is actually 10 people. So that's, a, in my opinion, very deceptive. 
So when we go back down, so 381 of the schools have 80% plus MMR coverage. So Trillium Charter in the top box there, that so uh, that school has a 20% conditional enrollment rate, but there's only five students. So a single student has put this school onto the list. And then uh, on the, below that white thorn, only four students. So again, this is just, it's not... Uh, I think actually that they violated the law here because I don't believe that uh, with confidentiality rules, I don't think that they're supposed to release data where it's identifiable. And when you get down, I believe in Washington state, we don't allow the release of data when there's less than 10 persons in the school or that particular group that they're demonstrating. So I haven't had a chance. This just came out two weeks ago. I haven't had a chance to work with my California people and figure that out yet. Hmm. So when you look at this, uh, because if you if you actually did the re, uh, did it at a decent number of students, then you wouldn't have any schools. You couldn't write a report like this. You couldn't make a story like this. So right. when you sort the you sort the cohort uh, by MMR complete two doses, so sixty one of the schools have a hundred percent. Then in the 90 to 99.99%, 194 schools. So you've got 255 schools or above 90%, 382, 415. So this is that same information in a little bit more readable chart. So this is hardly a catastrophe. Then when we look at the, uh, this is the criteria. So you have K non-reported. So I would bet money that at least some of these schools actually did report and the Department of Health has lost the data. That happened in Washington State. We had a uh, we had what they call a performance review and uh, by the state auditor's office. And one of their uh, findings was that 29 school districts either did not report their kindergarten data or had falsely claimed they had zero kindergartners. Now, being involved with the schools, I am elected, but I'm speaking 100% as a private person today. I need to always uh, disclose that. Um, is that uh, why would any school not report or worse claim that they had zero kindergartners this year? So when I went to the I went to the uh, Joint Legislative Audit Review Committee, I went to a hearing there and testified. I said, look, in defense of the auditor's office. If the Department of Health gives you a list and says these 29 school districts either did not report or worse, claim that they had zero kindergarten students, you would believe that is correct. But then I said, now, in criticism of the auditor's office, it's an alphabetical list. And the first is the first district is Bellingham, which is like the 26th largest school district in Washington state was couple, you know, so that in order for this to be true, you would have to believe that the PhD superintendent of that school district had instructed the nine RN nurses that worked there that, and told them, look, we're either not, we're going to either claim we had no kindergartners or, uh, or just not send in the report this year. One of the schools on the list, uh, one of the districts was the adjoining district to mine. And, uh, so I called over. I said, hey, Ralph, did you guys report last year? He goes, yeah, as far as I know, we did. Why? I said, well, you're showing up in an audit. There's an audit here that says you didn't. And uh, small school districts that don't have enough budget capacity to keep their own nurse on staff, there's a, uh, there's a thing called an educational service district. So there are 
there's, I think it's 11 or 13 in Washington state. There's somewhere, but some more than 10. Anyway, they provide nurses, they provide special ed, they provide things to small districts that can't float that themselves. So in the smaller school districts, the 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 school staff puts together the information, they give it to the nurse, and then the nurse uploads it. So within 25, 30 minutes of this report coming out, I already knew from the 29 school districts that they had all reported. So it was a, uh, uh, and, and one of them answered me right back and says, oh no, that was a problem with the Skyward system. Everybody knows that. And yet the Department of Health had provided that list to the auditor's office and, and, uh, Claim that, and then with instructions to the auditor's office, you are not supposed to ask the districts why they didn't report. And that's a, that's all. That's its own talk by itself. So anyway, mm-hmm. I would bet I haven't had a chance yet, but I would bet that some, if not all, of these kindergartens and seventh grades did report, and they lost it, or they're probably, or potentially, they are not required to report because if they're completely online, then the, those students are outside of the SB two seven seven law. Then you had the criteria there for this and that. So then, uh, you know, so students who are in special education, they have an individual education plan or have a medical exemption are not required to be vaccinated. Students who learn from home without any in-person instruction or school-related activities are not required to be vaccinated. So there was a number of schools in the article that were named. And when I just took them out and said, well, let's look at how bad they are. So Markham, but we're back to this same situation again, where you have these incredibly low enrollments, you've got 11, 33. uh, And then when you go back again over to the MMR, so Twin River Community Outreach Academy, that's, uh, you know, you have uh, 100% MMR on that school, 85, 80, you know, again, and then is this a crisis, crisis warranting this scrutiny? And if you added all of these schools up again, they're less than uh, there. It's a fractional percentage of what's going on in California schools. So this is an intentional effort to just get people riled up. And uh, and so what is the purpose of these types of stories? One of them is to paint parents as poor guardians. And uh, another one is that the schools are unaccountable. And the reason is that is they want to justify on-campus school clinics to expand the mature minor laws to bypass parental consent. So uh, I think that in many states, because the hepatitis B vaccine is considered to be a sexual, you know, uh, that kids can consent to that down to a certain age in their teens, they can be less than 18. And there's all of this effort to, again, bring down the age of uh, the the kids that can consent to these things. And then claiming that districts are not reporting is to provide a basis for requiring all records to be uploaded into the cloud. That's what the purpose was of the performance review in Washington is that, uh, you know, part of, uh, and in that earlier from that adult vaccination plan where it said establish a national adult immunization registry, Well, the simplest way to do this is when you have the most control of the people, which is while they're in school. So if they can load, if they can load that thing up with everybody that's under 18, then if nothing else over time, those data will continue to move forward as everyone ages into that cohort. Um, uh, Carl, I know that your uh, focus is on the school districts, but um, what, uh, what impact does Obamacare have on that because there were extensive uh, 
additional recording of medical information that was required under Obamacare. And I think if we look at it, it probably all fits within this, uh, this whole idea of a, uh, a medical, uh, you know, a medical card for every single yes. person in the United States. You know, I, I don't have any specific knowledge of Obamacare other than, and I don't know if it was due to Obamacare, but I do know that the different reimbursement rates that, uh, that Medicare and Medicaid will pay, that they get bonuses. You could either call it a bonus if you achieve certain immunization rates, or they call them performance incentives or something, or you, and sometimes they deduct if you fall below. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I that I did see that was positive about Obamacare was that if you contracted the flu while you were in the hospital, the hospital wasn't supposed to charge you. They weren't supposed to get paid for that. And then that <laughs> happened, right? Because the one thing about medicine, so I used to be a mechanic and uh and if I would if I put a muffler on your car and it rattled and you came back and I had to fix the rattle. I didn't charge you to fix the rattle because I was supposed to do it right the first time. But in healthcare, a surgeon can leave a sponge and a set of forceps in your abdomen and then get paid for the first surgery and then get paid to take it out again. And unfortunately, the way the billing works is uh, a hospital infection adds $30,000 onto the bill. And uh, so if all you do is look at the numbers, that's not a bad thing if you're in that part of the hospital that's not dealing with the discomfort and the pain of the patients. So that was one thing that was kind of good. Now, that also potentially played a part in COVID because let's imagine you have a patient in the hospital and uh, if you diagnose them that they had contracted flu while they were in your facility, you don't get paid. But if you diagnose them as having contracted COVID, you get uh, you not only do you get paid, but you got there was various other incentive structures that right. that are connected to that. But uh, no, this uh, you know this is a very comprehensive, all-encompassing plan. And when we go when we get to the uh, the one I did in Arizona, then I'll show you the different policies. So that this is formal adopted policy. This is not something that's just. Uh, uh, you know, that they're doing in the back room or something. This is right out front and center. Mm -hmm. So again, so they, yeah, they have a, you know, there's a, there's a plan behind this, you know, there's a method to this. So then uh, in terms of this specific article, what I would recommend is you go to the Defender Children's Health Defense and, uh, and then the search on this is uh, Children's Health Defense, uh, def uh, California defund schools with low vaccination rates. And you can see then it has a link to the original article also. And when you read these, you can see just how sketchy it is. This, uh, the uh, uh, author of this article, uh, PhD, Brenda Belletti, she's very competent. And uh, so she incorporates my data and then has some other data too. That's how I was alerted to this story that came on here. And so the, uh, but yeah, you go through there because, you know, there, it's, it's pretty incredible that, one of the paragraphs in the story, it actually says that 90% uh, of the 11 kindergartners in this particular school don't have all their shots. I'm do, do you under, you know, and I'm thinking, does this, does the person who wrote this not understand how ridiculous that sounds? 
when you're talking about 90% of 11, <laughs> right. just right. say nine. But uh, so what I'll do, so that, that one there, and then I'm going to queue up, uh, I'm going to queue up one here. Just give me a second. And uh, so the next one is in Washington had a, uh, so in 19 or 2019, the year before COVID. And if you remember all of the uh, drama that was occurring um, and that was the year when they had the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, they had those hearings and uh, there was that young man who had been, uh, uh, he was uh, 18 and he was going to, he'd been unvaccinated by his mom and he was very excited to be able to go get his shots. And they had him in a hearing at the, in the Capitol, it was a, a health education labor. And, uh, you know, there was a lot going on right then pre COVID. And uh, so that was when we had in Washington state, we had a, measles outbreak that had occurred in a Slavic church and it was completely restricted to that church. And it was a, a private school, private church, uh, Sunday school and, a, and, and the church and all of the cases were contained within that group. But they had, they pretended like it was all over the state and our governor declared an emergency, which went on for the, the entire legislative session until they got their bill through. So what they did, and I'll pull this one up now. And uh, is that okay, Dan? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, they passed a bill, uh, HB 1632, uh, 1638. And what that did was they tried, they had tried to get rid of all of the exemptions for all of the vaccines and then they were fought back. And we had uh, 2000 people show up for a meeting at 8 a.m. Um, and uh, Robert Kennedy came out, RFK came out to speak at that one. And on that day, we actually had a, a blizzard in the afternoon. It was brutally cold, didn't stop all of the people that came out. And uh, they actually cut the hearing short because we were, we were doing so well. Uh, I got to meet uh, RFK in the back room. I had, we had two, we were going to, we were doing alternating panels between uh, us and the other team. And uh, we did so well after the first panel, suddenly the chair decided that you, you, you're not allowed to do any more. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and then, and then uh, uh, you know, we have a three minute, three minutes to, to do your test, you know, to, to testify. And I, I tell people that's like, it's like doing a, it's like doing a legislative haiku to try to fit any kind of information in that three minutes. But uh, so they were able to, through a lot of shenanigans, get this HB 1638, which took away the personal belief exemption for the MMR, but left the religious belief. So now that that's been in place for a couple of years, then this paper came out, state policy removing personal belief exemption for measles, mumps, and rubella. And it's, uh, they're going to claim that removing that per personal belief exemption increased vaccination rates. So what, what I'm doing with this paper or with my presentation is to show how that's not true. Mm. And, uh, and it, it's the same kind of thing. Once you follow my work, you start to realize, oh my gosh, these guys are, they're all doing the same thing. It's almost like they get together, coordinate and talk about it. I'm sure so, they do. Yeah. They, I wish I had the, yeah, they have big conferences and, you know, I was joking with one of my friends one time that during the legislative session, we don't mow our lawns. 
you know, for four months, we run ourselves into the hole. And then when the when the legislative session's over, then we try to put our lives back together. And all the lobbyists, they just go to the Bahamas or something and sit around with, uh, you know, their fancy <laughs> drinks and plan how they're going to do it next time. But mm -hmm. so this is uh, the concurrent. So there's an uh, American Journal of Public Health Opinion piece lauding EHB 1638 as a success and potential model for other states. So that you have this, uh, according to the authors, it went well at uh, creating this law. EHB 1638 was associated with a 5.4% relative increase in kindergarten MMR completion rates and a 41% decrease in MMR exemptions for K-12 students. Both findings were statistically significant. However, the rate of religious exemptions among all K-12 students for any required vaccine increased 367%. Mm -hmm. Now, you would think that a, a person that has a master's of public health or a Ph.D. or an M.D. would look at that and go, that's unusual. <laughs> so uh, now, so if you and again, these things are created so that the casual reader is going to read that and come away with an impression. Oh, my God, that thing worked great. We got five percent more kids are vaccinated, more safe people. So and in the head napkin calculation, if they got a five point four relative increase with a forty one percent discrete decrease you you would have expected that the exemption rate must have been 11 or 12 percent okay but from the abstract so the uh the implementation was associated with a 5.4 percent relative increase in kindergarten mmr series completion rates so relative we need to figure out relative to what and that mmr exemptions increased overall 41 percent so if the uh, rate went up 5.4, you would expect the exemption to come down 5.4. And if 5.4 is only 40% of whatever it was, that's when you it had to have been 10, 11%. So here's the problem with these statements is that a 5.4 increase in MMR complete exemption decrease is that uh, that's what the average person is going to believe. And they're, the Lobbyists are going to go into the legislators accompanied with the public health people. And at, at any more, they're basically the same thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it's but it does say in there that the actual so in the in the amber highlight MMR exemptions overall decreased 41 percent from 3.1 to 1.8. Now, a critical reader is going to say, wait a minute, if the exemption rate was only 3.1 in 2018 and 19, how could you get a 5.4% increase? <laughs> it's, right? So that's mathematically impossible. So this paper is designed to conceal the, the true low initial exemption rate, which is 3.1%, and then that small reduction of 1.3 in exemption use associated with this law. And again, it's associated. It's not Causal would say, we know that when we did this, the rate went up, exemption went down. A, a correlated would be when one goes up, the other goes up, or when one goes up, the other one goes down predictably both ways. Associated just means they both happened at the same time. It's the lowest level. So this paper is designed to imply that the 5.4 relative increase was shifting exempt to complete. This is absolutely false. So the first problem with this, again, is that the MMR exemption rate was only 3.1% to start with. Mathematically, you cannot gain a 5.4 increase in complete rates by eliminating or restricting a 3.1 exemption rate. 
Problem number two is that 3.1 didn't go to zero. The rate only decreased 1.3%. Again, you can't get a 5.4% increase with a 1.3% decrease. So what was what did it really look like? So these are the numbers from the re, from the study. So the uh, each of these bar graphs here. So you can see in 2014-15, 89% complete. Blue is complete. Uh, the orange is conditional out of compliance and exempt is the gray at the top. So hmm. okay. the, the Department of Health is claiming that exemptions are causing low rates. So exempt is above the red line, the gray. So you see that the exemption rate in each of those years, 3.2, 3%, 3.1, 2.9, 3 3.1. So it was never more than 3.2 was the most it ever was. And then the, uh, so you have then 97% of the students are not exempt, averaged through those years. Mm -hmm. So complete averaged around 90%. So what you've got then is that the out of compliance is average of six and a half percent and complete averages there, then you have the uh, about 90, 90.5%. So that's when they're getting this business of uh, the, uh, you know, the relative increases. So out of compliance has double the impact to reduce complete than exemptions do. So you had that that big orange section in the middle. Out of compliance is where the that's what's causing the major depression of complete. And remember, complete is like fully vaccinated in California, which is if you have 16 of 16 by November 1. In this case, does a kindergartner have two MMR injections logged into their paperwork on November 1 of the school year? So what happens is, is that so each of those years, you see the 3.2 to 3 percent. So that average 3 percent, they're exempting from two injections. And then that orange section, those are kids who are not exempt, but are in the process of getting their second exemption. Mm -hmm. So then out of compliance is unrelated to exemptions. Out of compliance is caused by Washington Department of Health measurement policy. So that the second MMR exemption is scheduled in a three-year window between the fourth and seventh birthday. This is what we just talked about in the California. Right. So then uh, this is from our Washington state. So in that red box there, all vaccinations used to be done before you were 18 months. And so by the time you got to school, you were already, if you were missing any, it was not very, you know, you might be missing one injection and uh, you were fully vaccinated. So then what's been happening here and in the box there I show, so the vaccine schedule used to be complete before kindergarten enrollment. This red box was fully vaccinated for life. And that's, uh, uh, and then you see in the left box corner by seven years or kindergarten. Well, that's a two year difference because mm -hmm. kindergarten enrolls at age five. And then here's another uh, vaccines required for childcare. Washington Department of Health complete is two injections by the report close on November one of the school year uh, by seven years or preschool school entry at four. So again, we're compressing this three-year uh, administration window into that small period. So there is a disharmony between the CDC ACIP medical age-based MMR second dose injection timing and the Washington Department of Health administrative grade-based measurement criteria for MMR complete. 
And I have submitted uh, petitions to the State Board of Health to say, we can correct this very easily. You just add an extra column that has one injection or two injection. And then we know who's on uh, uh, within the medical guidelines, but not based on that. They don't want to do that because then they would have to admit that their vaccination rates are 100 minus the exemption rate, which is 97%. You cannot get legislation with a 97% exa- uh, vaccination rate. Right. So this cause is not exempt, but not yet complete one injection students to be falsely categorized as out of compliance. These students are fully within medical guidelines up to age seven. So then when you look at this paper, so this is again, the American Journal of Public Health, and uh, how many times do they address the out of compliance issue? There's one, uh, it shows up one time when you search the document uh, and uh, it j- just simply to define what is out of compliance. It doesn't show up in any of their other statistics. Now using kindergarten complete rate disguises actual high MMR coverage. So this is uh, the, the K-12, this is all grades together. And then complete equals two injections by the November 1 report close. ACIP schedules the second one between age four and seven. Kindergarten enrolls at age five. Now, not exempt first injection, MMR within the medical guidelines up to age seven, no relationship to exemption policy. So when you look at the entire K-12 system, once the kids are old enough to have that second shot, you are for practical purposes, 100 minus the exemption rate because you can see measles, mumps, and rubella, they track them separately, even though they're all in the same injection, you have 95.9%. You take 90, you take 100 and take out the 3% exemption rate you, we used to have, and that's pretty much that amount. There's 1% off, and that is actual out of compliance. Those are transient families that don't have their records or you know whatever the various at-risk type people. So what really happened to increase the vaccination rate? So the actual increase, so first off is that they were, he's claiming, a, they're claiming in this paper of 5.4%. That's relative, but the actual increase was only 3.6%. So in 2019, and uh, you see the jump there, uh, the out of compliance went down 2.3%, exemptions went down 1.3%, and the complete went up 36 So they didn't get a 5.4%. I, I don't know where they're coming up with the relative if they added, I I still don't know where that came up with. So the question is, so we see that 2.3% of the gain was getting the out of compliance. And then, uh, and then there was a 1.3% actual exemption use. So did those people start to vaccinate? No, they left the school system. So what happened, the other reason that the rates went up is that during COVID, they, they moved the report date back from November one until the end of the school year. Well, by the end of the school year, more of the kids are old enough to have that second dose, and they also have more time to get the paperwork together. California used to do a thing they would call a, a, a selective review, where at the end of the kindergarten year, they would survey a collection of schools, and they always picked up two or three or four percent of complete because now the kids are old enough to get all their uh, to have gotten those one of those whatever last of the four doses they were missing and or got their paperwork in. So during 2019, 20 and 2021, the reports were delayed later in the year, shifting not exempt out of compliance, receiving the shot, the second shot, number two into complete. That is how the increase occurred in 2021, where the report dates are back to normal. 
then you see that we've got the out of compliance. So in 2021 and 21-22, out of compliance is up 1.7%. Why is that? It's because we're back to kicking the report November 1 instead of the end of the school year. Mm. So where did that 1.3% and exemptions are up uh, a little bit too. So what happened to that 1.3%? They left the school system. So Washington State kindergarten enrollment drops 14%. Uh, how many wash, How many students did Washington public schools lose during the pandemic? Uh, state education spending has decreased by 900 million as enrollment dropped during the pandemic. In October 2020, about seven months after Washington schools first started remote learning in response to COVID-19, statewide public school enrollment has lost 40,000 students or 4% of more than a million children. Because kindergarten is hard enough, you know, the parents were not going to send their kid to school to sit in a mask all day. Right. Among all of among all of the other, you know, the COVID interventions really took a lot of the people. And then uh, parents that have uh, that that's our exemption using type people are the same ones that have a problem with the mitigations. So back in 2020, in the early days of the pandemic, as Washington State students started learning remote, uh, remotely, Jen Garrison Stuber's email blew up. Garrison Stuber is the advocacy of Washington Homeschool Organization. We, we went from three to 10 emails a day to about 40. So that, uh, you know, public school enrollment has lost about 40,000 students. In October, the number of homeschool students in Washington State nearly doubled to 39,000. So that's where, that's how they got the decrease in exemption use, is those people just left the schools. Then here is the Office of Financial Management. You can see those numbers. So in 2019, Washington had a 1,115,000 students. And then the next year, you can see that drop down. There's about 40,000 down and, and they have stayed out of the schools. And this is actually, when I first got started on this was uh, because our school is very small. We have 60 to 70 F full-time exemptions. I mean, uh, full-time enrollments. That's how your money from the state is calculated. So I was uh, trying to explain to the legislators, if you eliminate exemptions, some of the families, you know, families that are exempting are not doing it casually. And that if you make it so they can't go to school anymore, uh, you know, they're not going to vaccinate to stay in school. They've already been under tremendous social, medical, legal pressure to vaccinate. So they're going to pull their kids out. Well, that's, uh, you know, for a, these smaller school districts, Washington has uh, I think 90 school districts of less than 300 students and maybe uh, 40 with less than 100. This starts to really be budget busters. And some of the schools, there are uh, there's a school in the Puget Sound that has 12 students. It's on an island. You know, there are some schools out in the, the prairies of eastern Washington. And, uh, you know, one or two or three students can, you know, if you have a, if you have a 10 student school, a one room schoolhouse, basically, you're talking about the viability of the program. So then legislators must understand the pressure to vaccinate is crushing. No family is hesitantly or casually exempting. Eliminating exemptions results in children leaving the schools. So does uh, uh, unscientific uh, COVID interventions, which is part of the next stock, our uh, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. So what has happened in California? So when they eliminated their exemptions, SB 277 uh, legally ended exemptions in 2015, so that first year, they had a total of 34,135 fewer students were enrolled in school this year compared to last. Until this year, the biggest single decline was 8,000. So 
when the law first passed, a bunch of people just left immediately. And SB 277 was very uh, strategically constructed so that California could say we got rid of exemptions, except it only did it for kindergarten and seventh grade. And then they grandfathered everybody else. And that's how they prevented having mass uh, protest. Uh, and they gave, and then there was a one-year grace period, and that's again another one of its whole talks. But they did that uh, very strategically to be able to claim they got rid of exemptions. I think this year is the last year that there are still some people left over from before SB two seven seven. Anyway, the uh, you know this just shows that it's, uh, and here's K twelve enrollment plunges again, falls below six million. So last year they lost one hundred and ten thousand on top of one hundred and sixty one thousand before. Now, clearly, there's a lot more going on in California than just the vaccine issue, but this doesn't help them uh, right. at all to have that. And then when California improperly invoked non-medical exemptions, so California only had a 2.5% exemption rate. They had to make up a whole bunch of stuff about Disneyland, and they had to use the uh, fully vaccinated number to make it look low. And... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they did all of the same gamesmanship they're doing now in order to trick the legislators into it. That's another talk. <laughs> mm -hmm. But anyway, there was a lot of devious uh, information manipulation in order to pass SB 277. But then once they did, here's a story, uh, self-styled California refugees moving to Idaho to avoid vaccinating their kids. Some California parents who moved to Idaho to avoid vaccinating their children are calling themselves refugees, according to an Idaho statesman investigation. So exempting families are so committed to the choice they will relocate to another state to avoid vaccination. So did EHB 1638 work? Did, did families abandon their exemptions and resume or been, begin vaccinating? Only as a last resort. The majority left the schools and appear to be staying out. Mm -hmm. So instead, because the reports, so what's happening, those two years, it looked good because the reports were being pushed to the end of the year. Because the reports were delayed to the later in the year in 21, 20, between 20 and 22, one dose MMR who previously were out of compliance were shifted to complete because it gave them time to get that second MMR during the school year. This only gives the appearance of success, which Washington Department of Health desired to show. This is why the paper can only say associated, not correlated or causal. The, oh, oh, the out of compliance is already climbing and complete declining with the normal report dates this year. Eliminating exemptions does not create new vaccinators. It really results in children leaving the schools. Mm -hmm. So then uh, EHB did not work. And this is one I'm working on. I'm trying to find if you have any suggestions for me, Dan, to try to get that to where a legislator can understand, wait a minute, they did, it didn't do what they're claiming because mm -hmm. I know that the lobbyists are going to have this paper and say, hey, look, Washington got a 5% increase in their vaccination rates by getting rid of the personal exemption. Uh, it's a policy, as we'll see in the next uh, in the next one, is there it's a policy that they will uh, incrementally restrict exemptions. It says that in their policy in, in, in states where you can't get a full re revocation, then make them renew it every year, make them uh, get it uh, notarized, you know, just to try to do as this many be things. a hassle, pain in yes. the ass. Yeah. 100%. Mm -hmm. And then so what we'll do now, I'll queue up this next one and then. Uh... That's full screen.
Fantastic. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate mm -hmm. you letting me just jabber on too. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> That's why you're here. <laughs> All right. So uh, this was the talk uh, where we met actually. Mm -hmm. And so get this thing to advance. All right. So uh, here's my disclaimers. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. I'm not medical or legal advice. It's informational. If I slip and say liar, liar, I, I mean, allegedly misrepresent. All data is typically screen captured, sourced, and my best understanding when presented. I'm always open to corrections and clarifications. I am an elected official, but I'm speaking fully as a private citizen. So this was a uh, for public officials and legislator briefing school vaccine attendance requirements data exemption policy. So I did a talk and uh, I, I went through this with you last time. That was the hidden agenda against school vaccine exemptions. We're up to almost 800 views now, uh, mm -hmm. which they tell me is pretty significant for something as dry as this subject is. And uh, this is the slide I keep getting sent back to me is I knew that something was going on. But this uh, when a legislator is shown a chart by a trusted state official or licensed medical professional or public private organization representative, how many legislators would ever think that there was any chance they were being mis intentionally misinformed? And that's the challenge. You know, the only way you write a story like that one that we looked at from California is if you know nobody's going to fact check you. All right. And otherwise, you know, I mean, it, they're not doing anything particularly sophisticated when you can open up the Excel and go, wait a minute, look at all of these schools with nine or less students. Look at all right. these schools. It's, yeah. It's, it's cherry picking. It's cherry picking just absolutely. so they can uh, come up with the the uh, concept that they want to sell. Exactly. Yep. yep. So then uh, I can buzz through this because we already did it. And this was just a review. So I try to make my talks so that they they are standalone. So then next, this comes in with COVID and uh, and for the influence that public health is exerting on policymakers, public uh, elected officials. So what is the noble lie? Elected officials are fully reliant on receiving accurate and unbiased information to provide proper governance. So is the data provided to policymakers being misrepresented to advance their policies? We just saw that. We've seen two examples of that. So what are the formal adopt adopted policies of public health? Do conditions warrant the constant focus on exemptions? How do school vaccine exemptions and requirements work? And are policymakers being manipulated? So today, legislators and policymakers must understand and incorporate the fact that public health and all related institutions can and will misrepresent information to legislators, politicians, and the public in order to influence and achieve policy objectives. So this is termed the noble lie, a euphemism for when you're misinforming someone for their own good. So this would be when you've got your kid and you tell them if you put your hand out the window above 60, your fingers are going to blow off. Or if you swallow a watermelon seed, you're going to have a watermelon plant. So uh, Slate, which is not at all a conservative uh, publication, they had an article literally titled The Noble Lies of COVID-19. And there's, of course, uh, esteemed Dr. Fauci. So the questions were, do we want public health officials to report facts and uncertainties transparently, or do we want them to shape information via nudges to influence the public to take specific actions? In March 2020, as the pandemic began, Anthony Fauci, the chief medical advisor to the president, explained in a 60 Minutes interview that he felt community use of masks was unnecessary. A few months later, he argued that his statements were not meant to imply he felt the data to justify the use of cloth masks were insufficient 
Rather, he said, had he endorsed mask wearing of any kind, mass panic would ensue and lead to a surgical and N95 shortage among healthcare workers who needed the mask more than the public. Yet emails from a Freedom of Information Act request revealed that Fauci privately gave the same advice against mask use, suggesting it was not merely his outward stance to the broader public. So we have two statements, masks don't work or masks do work. One of these is true and the other is the noble lie. So Dr. Fauci claims his statement masks don't work is false and is admitting it was a noble lie intended to protect the supply of masks for healthcare workers. After someone has told you they will misrepresent to influence behavior, how can we sort out what are the real flat facts and what statements are noble lies? Mm -hmm. So inconsistencies to the claim that masks don't work as being his false. Dr. Fauci was saying the same thing privately to a number of people that were too few to impact the national mask supply. If masks really did work, wouldn't he clue them in? Listen, you're going to hear that masks don't work. They do get enough for yourself and your family, but don't tell anyone until the supply loosens up. The other problem with claiming masks don't work is that that is the false one, is that masks don't work aligns with all previous guidance and advice about masking right up, in, right up to the pandemic plans of February 2020. Uh, if masks stop COVID, they must be effective against wildfire smoke, Arizona Department of Health. Dust masks are not enough. Common masks will not protect your lungs from small, small particles and smoke. HEPA masks may filter out small particles, but are not suitable for people with lung diseases. Yet, of course, the guidance was everybody can wear any kind of mask all day, right. every day, and for any purpose. Uh, this is a very strong one. This is the Oregon uh, wildlife smoke. Do not rely on masks for protection. Paper comfort or dust masks Commonly found at hardware stores are designed to trap large particles such as sawdust. These masks will not protect your lungs from smoke. There are also specially designed air filters worn on the face called respirators. These must be fitted, tested, and properly worn to protect against wildfire smoke. People who do not wear their respirator may gain a false sense of security. If you choose to wear a respirator, select an N95 and make sure you find someone who has been trained to help you select the right size, test the seal, and teach you how to use it it may offer some protection if used correctly. So this is the big one uh, from Washington Department of Health. So I live in an area with wildfire risk. At one point I was on a four hour notice, you know, I had to be ready with four hours notice to evacuate. So I, because I live near the school where I'm on the board, I thought, well, should these kids have, you know, if they're out for playground or something. So I looked and I found this document, wildfire smoke guidance from Washington and, uh, those red circles with the on the surgical mask and the one strap paper mask, that's them. That's not me. They're, that's the Washington Department of Health saying that these masks are not good. So this uh, this guidance designates surgical and nuisance masks as zero efficacy. N95 may only provide some protection by filtering fine particles with multiple caveats regarding proper use, medical contraindications, and no representation they can be worn all day, every day. And most importantly, in the red highlight, masks are not approved for children. So DOH, it was a non-starter to suggest that kids wear masks for the fire, uh, wildfire smoke. Now, the other thing about masking for particulates versus masking for a virus is that, uh, you know, it, when you're when you're masking for particulates that are not self-reproductive, you're you're just trying to reload, re reduce your overall the amount that gets in. 
as compared to when you're masking for a virus, if one particle gets in there, then that's going to potentially reproduce and that's how it starts. So it has to be a much higher standard than, of course, just trying to keep the, the maximum, the total number of particulate exposure down. Now, on uh, February 29th, 2020, that was a leap year, then Washington Department of Health, they published a non-pharmaceutical intervention guidance document. Uh, and it had 13 possible non-pharmaceutical interventions. They ranged from increased hand washing and use of alcohol-based sanitizer all the way to establishing a cordon sanitaire, which is a, you know, like a quarantine area. And masking is not even on the list as a possibility. So then uh, why not? This source document explains evidence base for effectiveness of mask use by the public when sick is not conclusive. So here you see, uh, this was a chart. So the other thing that when I went through this chart, this is from the Comprehensive Emergency Management Plan on mil.wa.gov that was developed by the Washington State Department of Health, the feds, everybody all together. And they have these different charts. And one of them has uh, how uh, infective is uh, an illness and then how severe is it. And then you could cross-reference that and figure out what level of intervention should this warrant? And when you put the true numbers in for COVID for the case to fatality ratio, et cetera, it did not, it didn't qualify. That's a different talk. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this one has, uh, this is a chart of the different non-pharmaceutical interventions and uh, use a mask in public if you are sick and uh, evidence base for effectiveness of mask use by the public when sick is not conclusive and that masks may reduce transmission if it's a droplet type of infection where you have to sneeze on the person. But somehow in the short time since March 1, 2020, and by I think June, we had the face covering, you know, which would let you wear anything, a bandana, a gaiter, et cetera. So then, uh, so one of my friends that's a rabid masker is like, but masks must provide some help. I mean, at least they can catch droplets, right? COVID is spread as an aerosolized virus. So if you were wearing your mask and you coughed into it and it caught, an first off, you have to be sick if it's going to be source control. So if you're wearing a mask and, and if, if you're sick, it's as source control. If it's, if someone else is sick, you're, it's protective. It's barrier control. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so let's say you are sick, you cough, a, you cough, a drop, a, an infected droplet there. Now, if you took your mask off right then and threw it away and used it like a tissue, then and put a fresh one on in a sanitary fashion, that could potentially give some benefit. Now, if you suspend an infected drop in this fabric in front of your face and you're breathing through it, then what you start to do is you nebulize that particle and you take a, a large droplet that could be affected by gravity, would fall to the floor and turn it into a smaller, more infective particle. And that's where this reference is, is called Aerobiology. This is a National Institute of Health integrated research facility at Fort Detrick. So what they do when they're doing animal studies, they the smaller the particle, the more dangerous it is. So they nebulize particles on purpose because they can't teach the sick rat to breathe in the other rat's face. So they have a, a machine that does that for them. 
And if uh, so, if you did catch a contaminated droplet and suspend it in front of your airway and breathe through it, then you are creating small drops that travel in the center of the air column. They go deeper into the recipient's lungs and are more dangerous. In the instances when a larger drop is caught in a mask, if an infected person removes that mask and replaces it in a sanitary fashion. So that's basically what I just said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was one of the memes. Why you should wear face masks? The urine test. Let me try and make it simple for you. This is truth or fiction. This one got <laughs> a lot of play. So the urine test. If we all run around naked and someone pees on you, you get wet right away. If you are wearing pants, some pee will get through, but not as much. So you are better protected. Now, this goes back, if the pee was self-replicating, that wouldn't do you any good. Anyway, uh, now, if the guy who pees is also wearing pants, the pee stays with him and you do not get wet. And then the highlight there is CDC also advises the use of simple cloth face coverings to slow the spread of the virus and help people who may have the virus and do not know it from transmitting it to others. Okay, so exposure control. If urine was self-replicating like COVID, the not as much urine would replicate and you would continue to get wetter. So the first problem with this meme is that nobody is peeing. There is less than 1% asymptomatic <laughs> spread. So this is a reference from the University of Florida. And when they looked at the study, the secondary attack rate for symptomatic index cases, uh, the asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic secondary attack rate is statistically not statistically different from zero. So this idea that you could be unknowingly infected and out getting people sick or that other people are unknowingly infected making you sick, which was the real justification for community masking, doesn't pan out. So then the next is, uh, the next problem with this meme is that, is COVID a waterborne illness? No, you don't contract it. Uh, do you contract it from contaminated water? No, it's an aerosolized virus. So then the question is, if someone pees their pants, can you smell it? And if you can, that's, that's, that is aerosolized urine, and that is how COVID is spread, even if everyone is wearing pants. So here we need to interject another concept. What education or credentialing is necessary to be able to form a rational conclusion on an obvious issue? This was one of the, my favorite memes. And of course, it's raining, pouring. Is it raining? I don't know. I'm not a meteorologist. <laughs> so here we are now. And uh, so California Air Resources Board, because, you know, uh, when I was a kid, of course, California had all of the smog and everything else. So they, they set in many ways the pollution standards for the country. So here is the confusing guidance by the California Air Resources Board post-COVID policy. So you're working at the Air Resources Board, you're a scientist there, you're legit. And you, so now you, uh, CARB does not want citizens to mistakenly believe that the cloth polka dot COVID mask they purchased on Etsy will protect them from smoke particles. So they have to come out with this web page with the statement while cloth face coverings offer protection against COVID 19 virus spread, they do not provide protection against smoke particles. So how ridiculous is that? Imagine that you were the guy that had to write that. So how could a mask that does not work on smoke magically work on COVID? So then what if masks don't work was actually the truth and that mask work was the noble lie? Was masking required to encourage vaccination because removing the mask could then be the reward for being vaccinated? 
and also to be a constant visual reminder that there was a pandemic. Otherwise, you wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So look at this. Sure enough, fully vaccinated, you can ditch the mask, CDC says. We have all longed for this moment, said the CDC's director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Uh, along with the masking is that we're absurdly high vaccine efficacy claims, noble lies to promote vaccination. You're being told, oh, you have a 96% effective, 90, 86%. So, okay. Then you have in the variants trying to show that, oh yeah, you get the shot, you're not going to get sick. Then there was a hearing when uh, you have a uh, Senator Collins Stating directly to Walensky, I used to have the utmost respect for guidance from the CDC. I always considered the CDC to be the gold standard. I don't anymore. And then Sanjay Gupta had to, uh, uh, Sanjay Gupta agrees with Senator Susan Collins' criticism of the CDC. And his quote is, I, it pains me to say this, but I see where she's coming from. Sanjay Gupta appeared on CNN and defended Susan Collins' questioning of the CDC coronavirus guidance. Collins requested Anthony Fauci and CDC Director Walensky uh, questioned them during a Senate hearing, and Gupta said he believes the CDC isn't following science and is eroding the public's trust in the process. Boy, isn't that the truth? Mm -hmm. So then uh, you can't know if it's raining because you are not a meteorologist. <laughs> So then we have the UK, uh, UK's former secretary, health secretary, plotted to deploy the new variant to frighten the pants off everyone into complying with lockdown. Leaked test text messages show. So this is, again, exaggerating their uh, quote-unquote noble lie to get everyone to stay home. So that uh, the damning messages between Matt Hancock and media advisor Damon Poole in the run-up to the Christmas 2020 show the behind-the-scenes planning to use Project Fear to prepare the British, British public for another COVID lockdown. They are part of a massive trove of more than 100,000 WhatsApp messages obtained by the UK Telegraph, dubbed, dubbed the lockdown files, showing how the government ministers and officials use scare tactics to force compliance at the height of the pandemic. So they were lying to the public to get compliance. So we know that public health groups will use noble lives to achieve their policy objectives. So what are the policies regarding school vaccination? So the question now is uh, clearly that you would say, well, how long has this been going on? It's, you know, it's obviously blatant with COVID, but what if they've been doing this for a very long time, right. which is what a lot of the people who have just now started to pay attention are starting to realize, well, maybe they were lying. You know, how long have you been lying to me? So then, uh, so here's the public health policy objectives. And I mentioned this earlier. So this is showing, so the National Association of County and City Health Officials. So this, since we were in Arizona, I showed, but every county in the country or regional district, some, some health or don't have their, you know, small counties will get together. They call them mm -hmm. regional health districts. But so you've got their mission, policy and advocacy. Uh, the mission of the National Association of City and County Health Officers is to improve the health community, health of communities by strengthening and advocating for local health departments. So policy and advocacy, advocating for your local health department, helping you advocate for public health. So they have a federal legislative and policy agenda, which is informed by our members and approved by, annually by the Nachos Board of Directors. So I was just uh, Friday and Saturday, we had our Washington State School Director General Assembly where we do the same thing. There's a, I can't remember, a hundred and some odd, we have policies and such so that if legislation comes up, 
that we will have already decided as an organization, there's 1,447 elected school board uh, officers in Washington state, uh, 295 districts, and there's most uh, have five, a couple of the larger districts have seven uh, school board members. And then in order for our representative organization to know to support neutral or oppose any kind of legislation that comes up, we have to go through all of this material. So we have what our formal adopted policy. And then every school has formal adopted policy with how you're going to handle something. And then, you know, when you get in trouble, you say, well, what was the policy on that? Did you follow policy? So what does, what is public health policy in this arena? So here we have uh, policy 1601, school and child care immunization requirements. Nacho supports implementation of child care school and university immunization requirements based on recommendations of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Nacho supports requirements that allow only medical exemptions due to... Uh, so uh, all of the individuals that are in the public health infrastructure belong to this organization or the American Medical Association or the American Academy of Pediatrics or all of these professional organizations have as formal adopted policy eliminating non-medical exemptions. So then in the highlights, implement requirements that follow the ACIP recommended vaccination schedule, require proof of immunization signed by a licensed medical professional. So it used to be, and it is still in some states, that the parent just lists the day, month, and year of the immunization and says, yeah, this is when it is. They don't want to do that anymore. They want to make you bring in an actual medical record. So uh, and, implement. Uh, uh, Carl, that might be where Obama care. That's, is there we go. Yep. Right. Because they're trying, what they want to do is they want to bypass the parent and bypass the patient and have it back and forth between the doctor and the government so that it's not you and your doctor anymore against the government. It's the government and the doctor against you, mm -hmm. in a sense. So implement requirements that include children who attend public and private schools and homeschooled children. Uh, implement requirements that ensure that all public and private schools report student vaccination status. So there, and it, when you go through these policies, then you say, oh, well, that's where this is coming from, this pressure to, to do this and to do that. So when you look at the difference between the school policy and the ACIP policy, so if, the, if Nacho had their way, then that list of vaccinations on the left, hepatitis B, DTaP, IPV, MMR, Bell cell, this whole list as compared to what is required for Washington K-12 is on the right. So it's a, a much more robust schedule. So then next is comprehensive adolescent health. Comprehensive approach to health for adolescents who face unique needs and barriers during the course of their transition to young adulthood. Educate providers, parents, and adolescents regarding minor consent laws that enable mature adolescents under the age of 18 to make informed decisions regarding their health care, specifically for services related to contraception, prenatal care, HIV, STI testing and treatment, substance abuse, outpatient medical. So then you see that. And okay, next, policy. And again, these are formal adopted policies written, voted on by the board. Comprehensive immunization programs adept addressing immunizations across the lifespan. Nacho supports an immunization program addressing all stages of life, compromising the elements listed above with the goal of increasing overall immunization rates and subsequently reducing morbidity, mortality, blah, blah, blah. So 
Support of comprehensive immunization programs would substantially improve delivering immunizations to expected mothers, children, ad adolescents, and adults. So they, this is a cradle to grave. Immunization information systems. So this business of saying that those schools didn't report and when in Washington they tried to say those districts didn't report, that is in order to require that everything go into these information uh, uh, immunization information systems. The achievement and maintenance of appropriate immunization levels across the lifespan requires assessment and monitoring of vaccination coverage rates in the population. Given the mobility of the American populace in terms of geography, insurance coverage, and the use of medical care, it is imperative that interoperable and coordinated state, lo local and state level IIS are supported by the federal government as part of a larger effort to adopt. So I think we've got laws against a federal uh so what they do is you just get each state one, but make sure the state ones all talk to each other. So you've achieved the federal system without actually calling it a federal system. And it's then a real ID. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So then you have uh, access to school based data. So then local health departments should be allowed to access health information from education record, records. So we have to amend the Family Education Rights Privacy Act. So they want to fracture FERPA so that everything goes into these data systems as early as possible. So the end goal of this collection of policies is to have a mandatory cradle-to-grave national vaccination program to participate in society, a hep B injection within 24 hours of birth to flu shots in the senior center. And then your and then your expected mother being given injections, a program where children are encouraged to bypass parents. The vaccination program will require all ASIP recommended vaccines. Every citizen will have mandatory enrollment in state immunization information systems that are interoperable and will function as a national tracking system. Every interface with healthcare or other aspects of government will provoke a query into your vaccination record, and any missing vaccines will be flagged, and services may be conditioned upon administration. Is Nacho an outlier? No. Virtually all medical trade groups and public health employees uh, share these policy positions. So this is a uh, American College of Obst Obstetricians and Gynecologists, uh, AMA, AAP. So all medical vaccine administration industry professional associations have eliminating non-medical exemptions as formal adopted policy positions. Here's American Nursing Association, American Academy of Family. They're all in there. And then uh, the uh, uh, American Medical Association has a litigation center of the American Medical Association and state medical societies. So they will uh, drop in a litigation team if you're if a, a group is trying to either expand exemptions or if the other group is trying to restrict them, they'll send in amicus briefs, et cetera. Judicial advocacy. Uh, parallel to the industry associations or the public health employee associations who also have missions or published stances supporting the elimination of non-medical exemptions and tightening of medical. So this is uh, some other groups besides NACHO. You have the Council of Ster State and Territorial Epidemiologists. They're the ones that changed the death certificate criteria and also the case measurement criteria at the beginning of COVID, uh, which was a violation of the federal uh, you, you, in order to change that type of data collection, you're supposed to file a uh, file a request in the register in 60 days and comment periods and things like that. Uh, the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers 
And then there's a group called AIM, which is the Association of Immunization Managers. And every single state immunization department belongs to AIM. And then, of course, that's the, here are the responses there. So when a legislator is shown a chart by a trusted state official or licensed medical professional, public private organization representative, how many of them would ever think that there was a chance they're being unintentionally misinformed? So this might be a case where these people, because it is the formal adopted policy of their organizations, they're thinking, well, you know, I got to do what I got to do to get this law, you know, get these policies implemented. It's, you know, it's like making your kid eat his vegetables or practice guitar. It's that level of, uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, exemptions and anti-vaxxers. So, uh, I've, I've diffused many discussions by simply asking, what do you think the exemption rate is? It must be 20 or 30% based on the drama. My next question is, uh, you know, do you do you agree that someone who has vaccinated their child cannot, by definition, cannot be an anti-vaxxer? And, uh, you know, who is, they're saying that anti-vaccine is a top thing. But again, we have less than one and a half children have zero vaccines and don't less than 2% are exempting. Here is just a different citation for that showing that how few children. So then the next thing that happens is you'll hear these things about uh, plummeting vaccination rates. And in the schools, uh, the use of non-medical exemptions by school children has been holding steady at about 2.2% for 10 years. And then uh, 16 of these 17 required shots are given by age seven. Exemption rates can't push vaccination rates to be lower than 100% minus. We've discussed that probably ad nauseum. So when you look at, uh, we're at the same 2.2%, even, even recently through COVID, it's surprised me actually, I thought we would see a significant drop and we haven't in the childhood uh, immunizations. So school vaccination rates cannot drop because vaccination is a school entry requirement. Students who are already vaccinated will always be vaccinated. Vaccination rates can't drop for kids who are already in school. So that was like with the COVID thing is I heard a joke about uh, what, what does someone who's had zero COVID shots and someone who's had six COVID shots have in common? Neither one will ever be fully vaccinated because <laughs> it's an open-ended deal. Now, uh, so then here's that same information in a different graphic in terms of what's required to get into school. Now, once you've set the baseline of you know, let's say for the, you know, for example, in this year, there's 96% of the kids have vaccinated. Well, when this kindergarten class moves into first grade, they will still have 96%. And then the next year, they'll still have 96. You can't go backwards in an already established K-12, 13-year cohort uh, once you've set that baseline. <laughs> so then uh, this is a, just a disturbing image. I like to use it as often as I can. And it shows giving all the doses, this is from a Texas uh, Vaccine Administration handbook, and one way to give five doses at one visit for a child under 12 months of age, and then one way to give seven doses uh, for a 12 months and older, except when I counted up on the 12 months and older, it's actually eight, because you have five in the legs, two on the right arm, and one on the left arm. And this is just for, you know, if you don't have grandkids or kids, you a lot of the I ran into this with the legislators. They just had no idea how aggressive the vaccination schedule is today. You know, you take a guy, uh, uh, you know, my age and older, and uh, he got three DTAP and an oral polio and maybe a smallpox, and you were fully vaccinated for life back mm -hmm. then. And then, a t and then a tetanus shot if you stepped on a nail or something. 
So they, when they hear anti-vaxxer, they're like, what's wrong with these parents? You know, that not realizing that when you show up with your 12 month old to their uh, well baby appointment, that there are, you know, eight hypodermics all laid out in a little stainless steel tray. So then the other part, and this goes back in is that, a uh, you know, in terms of when we're back to that inclusionary criteria, so that uh, this is from the CDC and explaining their report is a child with an exemption is not necessarily unvaccinated. One of the misrepresentations by public health is that every exempt child is a 100% unvaccinated kid. And uh, more than 99% of the 08-09 birth cohort who became kindergartners at least in 13-14 received at least one vaccine in early childhood. An exemption might be provided for all vaccines, even if a child missed a single vaccine dose or vaccine. And then uh, one, one of the things that happened at Washington was they added chickenpox without telling anybody. So then parents are showing up at school and the, and the schools are saying, well, you're supposed to have a chickenpox shot. It's like, since when? And uh, back then, the Washington had the record on one side and then you could flip it over and the exemption was on the backside. And so you've got a school where the secretary knows the family. They've been there for a long time. It's like, look, I just have to have something. Turn that thing over and sign the back. So that you you know we don't have to mess with this and mm -hmm. and then the other thing was you know the crazy thing now is they want you to have a doctor's documentation for chickenpox. So I overheard uh, at a, a roundup, you know, and this uh, secretary and a parent and the dad's going, well, I uh, uh, she already his daughter she already had chickenpox. Well, I need to know from the doctor, and I didn't take her to the doctor. It was chickenpox. Mm -hmm. And the nurses, I mean the secretary, well, I know, but I still need to know from the doctor. I said, I told you. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if, if I go to the doctor, it'll only be in the record because I told the doctor, just like I'm telling you, so let's cut out the middleman. And anyway, and so a hundred dollar bill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, so then, uh, so a parent or guardian might choose to complete the required exemption paperwork if it's more convenient than having a child vaccinated. That's not true, but a document in a kindergartner's vaccination history at enrollment. So what they're saying here is that there are more cases of vaccinated kids using exemptions to fulfill the paperwork requirement than vice versa. So then uh, this was just specific and because vaccination rates are so high, exemption rates are so low. So this is just more examples of the misrepresentation. So in Arizona, this was uh, from 18, 17, 18 kindergarten. And then uh, you have, uh, this is all of the counties and exempt from every required vaccine on the far right column. And I have a box around a county there, Greenlee County, which has a two and a half percent exemption rate, very respectable. So how do you make numbers this solid look bad when you're going into the legislature to try to get your, get your bill to restrict exemptions? So you change the report from how many schools to, from the exemption rate to how many schools have greater than 95% MMR. This is exactly what they were doing in California in my first example. Right. So this is uh, as measured by number and percentage of schools that have at least 95% kindergarten students with two or more doses by the report. So then what you look at this, so now Greenlee uh, went from a two and a half percent exemption rate. They're only, they only have 50% of their schools with community immunity now. So they went wow. from an only two and a half percent exemption rate to 50%. But then if you look at the number of schools, they only have two schools. And one of them has more than 95. It's the same crap. So how can Greenlee County with an only two and a half percent exemption rate have only 50% community immunity? 
Well, if you look at they, they have 157 students. So 2.5% of 157 is 3.97. So there's only, there's only four exempt students in the whole county. So I pulled up each their schools. They've got two schools. Uh, Metcalf Elementary has 148 students. And in that school, one student is one is 0.68%. In the other school, uh, Duncan Elementary, they have 15 kindergarten students. So you have uh, uh, one student is 6.66%. So if one of those students is either exempt or simply waiting for that second dose, that will drive that school below the 95% threshold and call it a school with less than 95%. Mm. And then so, and uh, when I said... 107, that's the kindergarten students, not the total students, because this is all about kindergarten. But it just shows you the efforts that they'll go to to try to take what are otherwise, uh, when they should be high-fiving themselves and going, look at what we've done. We've got 97% compliance nationwide in this voluntary compliance with the recommended school schedules. Mm -hmm. So is this an honest and ethical representation of the vaccination status of the students in Greenlee County? You know, if I was a county official and I was told, oh, my gosh, only one of your schools is OK, and then found out later on that the reason the other school wasn't is because one child was waiting for his second MMR, I'd be I, I don't think I would be very happy. So mm -hmm. how would you receive learning this if you were a governing official? So this is the uh, <laughs> in many yeah. counties in Arizona, less than half of the schools have MMR community immunity of 95 percent. We have to get rid of exemptions. So then I have a, uh, and I talked about this with you last time, uh, Connecticut, the uh, Connecticut uh, Department of Public Health forgot to tell their Justice Department that they were fibbing about the rates. And that's been going through, uh, there's been a, a court case and appeal, and one of the judges in the dissenting opinion was pointing out how deceptive the rate representations had been. So they had their... Uh, uh, legislators are falsely to told that if they remove exemptions, everyone will just get vaccinated. Citizens using exemptions, exemptions are just hesitant, and they need the nudge to vaccinate. So then uh, here's a picture of what happened in New Jersey when they tried to remove the <laughs> exemptions there. That doesn't look like those people are hesitant. They look very committed, and, uh, you know, they call it the Battle of New Jersey. And we looked earlier, you know, the, that uh, when they got rid of exemptions in California, they've lost students every year. And, of course, these they do not look hesitant. And then uh, in Connecticut, they have uh, – Connecticut has a law where everyone who wants to testify gets to testify. And they have had an in-person 24-hour hearing. Uh, and then the next – they couldn't pass it because COVID hit. And then the next year, they had 24 hours on online hearing. So legislators must understand the pressure to vaccinate is crushing. No one is hesitantly or casually eliminating exemptions results in children leaving the schools. So hesitancy is a creation by the vaccine uh, proponents, because if legislators understand if we get rid of exemptions, these kids are going to leave the schools. They know they have a constitutional responsibility to educate all students. So they start to think, OK, well, let's set up a parallel system. Let's maybe have exempt teachers teaching the exempt students. And public health can't permit that because then it legitimizes not vaccinating as an option. So then there's that same slide about how much California, how bad California has got, got hurt. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we get rid of exemptions, everyone will stay at school and just vaccinate. 
which we've seen with multiple exemptions. If rates aren't low and vaccination rates are high, once the students are all old enough to receive all boosters, how can we, what can we use to convince legislators exemptions are bad? Is that we must permit immune compromised. So then uh, any person who is at mortal risk from exposure to a vaccine targeted infection is also vulnerable to many more infections with higher rates of circulation than those targeted by vaccines. So every state will have a form that's notifiable conditions. They typically have somewhere between 80 and 120 infections and different types of things. And uh, so Connecticut, I got one um, when I was helping with Connecticut, they have the rates and you have, you know, group A strep, 223 cases, group B, 497 cases. So if you, this idea that you have to get rid of exempt kids but you know, no, no, no responsible parent is going to put an immune compromised child into a school uh, with right. all of these other conditions that are going around there. It's not like these are the only ones that are. Any person who is at risk from a vaccine targeted infection is also at risk from other infections that are much more common. So the immune compromised patient. This was a Johns Hopkins paper, and it said that uh, uh, the most significant was that. Uh, can I have visitors avoid contact with children who were recently vaccinated? Now, we found this and we're using it during the SB 277. And suddenly that part got edited out and had been in place and reviewed annually for 17 years. And then suddenly within three months of us showing that to the California legislature, they edit that section out. And then in the then if you look at uh, Immune compromised patient treatment guides consistently advise exposure to the recently vaccinated or schools warning immune compromised students, which of their classmates have just had a shot. And then there's a care guide for Stellara, which is an immune compromising uh, or immune suppressing drug says, you know, stay away from anyone who's been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so what education law provides home instruction when vulnerable? So here's the California sample. This, all states have this. This is a nice example of it. Washington has it. So schools don't want vulnerable students on campus and have specific programs to provide home instruction while susceptible. So it, uh, the purpose of home and hospital instruction is to provide instruction to a student with a temporary disability in the student's home or in a hospital or other residential health facility. So if a person is truly immune compromised, we don't want them on campus. So then the... Uh, uh, is it raining? We must protect the immune compromised. It is not okay if they die of chickenpox because there is a vaccine. It is okay if they die from strep because there is no vaccine. Mm -hmm. So once exemptions are ended, there will be no infections ever at schools. 100% vaccination equals 100% immunity. That's false. Vaccines, a product, are incapable of achieving the legislative intent of 100% immunity. Outbreaks can and do occur in fully vaccinated populations due to vaccine failure. Primary vaccine failure is when the vaccine never provides protection. That's 7% for measles. Secondary vaccine failure is when it wears off. That's why they have boosters. And immune escape is when the vaccine strain is no longer a good match for the circulating strain. So then this is a reference from the CDC about the measles vaccination. One dose of MMR is approximately 93% effective at preventing measles. Now, that doesn't mean that 100% of the people, 93 times you were exposed, you'd be okay, and seven you wouldn't. It means that 93% of, of those people have what they consider to be protective, and 7% don't. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the highlight, so 
one dose of MMR is approximately 93% effective. Almost, and then the second line, almost everyone who does not respond to measles component in the first dose will respond to the second dose. And then this is their own verbiage. Therefore, the second dose of MMR is administered to address primary vaccine failure. They don't <laughs> like to say this. Mm -hmm. So then uh, uh, mumps component is about 88%. So 12% of MMR re recipients are never protected from mumps. And I know we're getting close here, so I'll just I'll, I'll uh, finish out this subject. So uh, differential durability of immune responses to measles and mumps following MMR vaccination. So this is describing secondary vaccine failure. When they looked at people seven and 17 years after two doses, uh, we saw uh, IgG titers exhibited a large and significant decline, similar discrepancy with measles-specific immune responses, and that a third dose doesn't help. Then you have immune escape. So the A strain of measles is what's in the vaccine, and we're all the way down to the H2 strain now. So that particularly from you know Central Europe and such. So the question is: is will this one even act? Would it work anyway? And that uh, so this is just kind of a graphic that I put together for uh, a legislator. So. Let's assume that 97% of the people are vaccinated, so only 88 to 97% are protected to go. And if you're lucky, you're still protected, but then the vaccine might wane. And then primary failure that you got the shot and you never were protected. Or immune escape is that you got the shot, but the shot doesn't match what's circulating. And uh, and then genotyping, this is just another example of that, is that uh, you, know, you have... Uh, in, in the measles, so 5% of kids who get a measles vaccine have a reaction that is indistinguishable from clinic treating clinicians with a, a, a natural measles infection. Mm -hmm. So then measles cases and vaccine reactions are identical to treating physicians and outbreaks. So is measles that mild or are vaccine reactions that serious? But uh, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go ahead and... Uh, this out here now i think that's where i'm just basically that's pretty much it so okay well um we, we we've got things that we can talk about oh, sure. uh, in this last five minutes but uh, it's it's i guess the best way to describe this is it's like all of these programs it's like they're the hammer right uh and if you're a hammer Everything you see is a nail. Look, that's right. Everything looks like a nail. Yeah. 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 And and so, you know, I know a lot of people who don't, you know, don't go out of the way to get vaccinated. I'm one of them. Um, I've had a serious case of flu one time in my life. It was when I was uh, 22 or 23 years old. And I was in the army, and they convinced me to get a flu vaccine. Mm. And uh, two days later, I damn near died. I was so sick from it. And I had never had flu before. And to my knowledge, I mean, I may have had it since, but it wasn't any big deal, you know. So some of us uh, aren't exactly jumping on the bandwagon to get over-vaccinated. Uh, obviously, uh, the COVID vaccine, absolutely not. My wife and I both got COVID. Uh, we got over it. We have natural immunity. and But the whole program that you're talking about, and you tell me if I'm wrong on this, it isn't about protecting people. It's about making sure that the pharmaceutical companies 
sell a hell of a lot of vaccine to a lot of people and make a ton of money. And therefore, Congress people who uh, get huge contributions from uh, pharmaceutical companies continue to get their huge contributions. Uh, I mean, this whole thing is like I said, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's kind of the mentality of what they're creating here is create a problem so you can solve it. Yeah, you know, and and uh, uh, I mean, vaccines are always listed as one of the top ten scientific or or health uh, interventions ever, and because of that, everyone that's involved with it thinks they're doing the right thing. That's the best way to do it. I think C.S. Lewis said that one of the most dangerous is someone who's doing something for you for your own good. You know, exactly. and you so you have this uh, end justifies the means. And if you if you believe and and the majority of people in public health, I don't uh, assign any ill ill intent. They think what they're doing is the right thing because they've never known uh, they've never seen kids who weren't vaccinated and and they're that were healthy. And, uh, you know, and if you if you truly believe that the vaccines are the the only way to be healthy, then, of course, you would want to encourage their use by everyone. And then. Uh, you know, and the fact that Pfizer made a hundred billion dollars on COVID is just a, uh, you know, that's just a, uh, a fortunate windfall for them, but they have, were actually only doing it out of the benefit uh, of their heart, you know, to make sure everyone's okay. But Well, sure. That's why they yeah. tried to get the, uh, uh, the law passed that they didn't have to disclose any of the uh, results of their studies or anything for 73 years. Isn't that uh, isn't that just astounding? <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up, Carl, and and you've been seeing that. What we do here, and this is the whole reason for this program, what we're trying to do is show people that there's so many people out there that are trying to help us, but they are a product of either progressive education. Uh, a pr progressive uh, socialist ideology. They are products of a completely mind control program that has been telling us what we need to know for the last hundred plus years. And what they've been telling us mostly is bullshit. Well, I met, I met Patrick Wood at one of my speaking events and mm -hmm. I had no, I was not familiar with technocracy. I didn't know that that word went back to the twenties or thirties. He's an expert on that, of course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, and there is a, uh, you know, you have this group of people that think they know better than you, how you should live your life. And there's no doubt that a tremendous amount of, uh, education is always deferring to experts. And so we have a, a, I know that I, for a long time, you know, when I was looking at this stuff, I was, I was amazed that they were doing, that they were doing this type of, uh, this type of misrepresentation. I thought at, at a, at a, if it's not unethical, it certainly must be illegal for them to do that. But then no one, no one ever questions them. They know they're not going to be fact checked. They know there'll be no pushback. And so they'll put whatever junk out that they want. If you, I would say that if someone is watching this and finds this interesting, I know, you know, Dan, you're one of the people that can follow right along with me. 
because a lot of people's eyes glaze over. In the introduction, when you were talking about how interesting this was, I thought, well, boy, Danza, I got a live one on because a lot of people, <laughs> they'll, they'll fade out, you know, when I start getting into the specifics of, uh, you know, a six-person kindergarten class. But, you, you know, is that uh, I had trouble showing uh, the the medical freedom doctors. They they couldn't believe what they were seeing. You know, they that was tremendously hard. And then... You know, the thing is, we want to believe that we can trust those people that are in authority. And unfortunately, we absolutely cannot. And I saw this, you know, from my very first, uh, you know, the very first uh, effort by public health to eliminate exemptions in Washington state was in 2011. And they were doing exactly what they're what they're all still doing now. They have an agenda, which is to eliminate exemptions, require all vaccines and to track everybody down to, you know, down to the individual person. And of course, then you connect that with the digital IDs and central bank digital currency. Bingo. And, yep. and you know what? And it's terrifying. I, I I agree with this because when when something that they have not just doubled down on, but tripled down on, quadrupled down, they're still trying to claim that that uh, you know, the vaccines that they know don't work on the COVID, in the case of the COVID, mm -hmm. they know they don't work. They're still recommending that everybody gets one and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, for a person to, when they, at the point they, had, they realize and admit, my gosh, if they're lying about this, what else are they not being truthful about? And that's quite destabilizing because then, you know, you look at this and well, what about food? What about uh, other types of medical care? And it's, uh, you know, you can really pull the leg out from uh, rug out from under people when they realize that uh, how much dishonesty is uh, just standard course of business in the operation of our government and the operation of commerce in the modern world. It's mm -hmm. really disturbing. It is really disturbing. And it's all about getting gaining control of our whole society and then being able to manipulate it yeah. in the way that they see fit. Well, the way they see fit isn't the way I see fit. I like freedom. You do too. Carl, how can people... Uh, know more about you. How can they contact you? How uh, can they uh, get more information on the stuff you're doing? Well, I'm putting everything I can on my Substack. So it's my name, lowercase, K-A-R-L-K-A-N-T-H-A-K.substack.com. And uh, I have a I have my talk with you link there and other links. I'm still learning how to, to uh, orient the page. I'm going to try to get it so it's easier to find specific things that you're looking for. And you know, uh, Dan, one of my talks, I have I have a picture with me and my mom because I'll show my mom this and she'll just ask me, but she goes, but why would they lie? <laughs> and yeah. because she just, she just so It's hard wants, for people to get yeah, their arms around the fact just, that we've been so deceived. Absolutely. Um, Carl, with your uh, permission, I'm going to go ahead and give your information to uh, Dell Big Tree and, uh, uh, I'm sure that he would like to have you on the high wire at some point in time and uh, Mickey Willis as well, because Mickey's been working on all these pandemic movies and uh, your information may be useful to him. Yeah. I've, I actually testified once with Dell side by side. And uh, now that man has mastered the three minute testimony because he can do three minutes without taking a breath. I think he does that Tibetan rebreathing some because he can get right in there, step up to the mic and go for boo and 
you know, I don't think he's been doing a lot of that lately because of all of the other, but yeah, we were uh, actually at that 2019 in Washington. I met him. So I've met, I've met him before. I think he's aware of what I do a little bit. I've never met Mickey Willis and, uh, and then I've never met uh, uh, Mr. Griffin either, but uh, well, there's you know, I appreciate a lot of anything you're doing. Well, there's a lot of people out there that appreciate what you're doing, because the fact is, is we've been deceived and it's yeah. time for the American people to wake up to the reality. And we're doing it through programs like this. It's amazing, Carl, how many more people are awake today than were two years ago. It's I agree with absolutely that. amazing how many more people and what they've done is they've shut off the NFL and they turned in programs like this. Uh, where you actually get a little bit of uh, information for your brain uh, instead of your eyeballs. So, Carl, thank you for being our guest. I, we are out of time. We're run a little bit over, but Carl, thank you again. And thank you. I, I will stay in touch with you. Very good, sir. Thank you. I appreciate All this right. time. Thank you. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to L.A., where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. There ain't no doubt I love this land